Welcome to Vet Talk with Dr. Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. For over 20 years, RX Vitamins for Pets has been providing leading edge, condition specific nutraceutical formulas for veterinary professionals around the world. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or you can give them a call at 1 800 792 2222. Hello. And welcome to Vet Talk. I am your host, Dr. Robert Silver, and I'm very excited today for the opportunity to speak directly with veterinary professionals from around the world who are experts in the webinar topics that I provide to veterinarians. Today's show, we're going to be talking with Jeff Chilton of Namex Mushrooms, and he'll share with us his expertise in both edible and medicinal mushrooms. Jeff, welcome today. Rob, great to see you. Thank you very much for having me. Jeff and I have known each other for quite a few years. I'm very proud to call myself not just a colleague, but a friend of his. And hes I've learned an incredible amount from Jeff about medical mushrooms. And most of that information was reflected in my webinar. But before we go any further with Jeff, let me let me read his, his bio because he's, he's really led a very busy life in the world of mushrooms. He was raised in the Pacific Northwest. He currently lives in British Columbia. He studied ethnomycology, and I want to find out a little more about what that is a little later in the, in the, in the program here, at the University of Washington in the late 60s and started working on a commercial mushroom farm in Olympia, Washington in 1973. During the next 10 years, he became the production manager responsible for the cultivation of over 2 million pounds of agaricus mushrooms per year. Now, those are little button mushrooms, aren't they? That's correct, yes. Okay, the ones that we commonly eat and see at the supermarket. Absolutely. Um, And he was also involved in the research and development of shiitake, oyster, and enoki mushrooms, which resulted in the earliest U.S. fresh shiitake sales in 1978, and I really appreciate that. Shiitake is one of the most favorite additions in (laughs) in terms of my cooking. In the late 70s, he was a founder of Mycomedia, which held four mushroom conferences in the Pacific Northwest. These educational conferences brought together educators and experts in mushroom identification, ethnomycology, and mushroom cultivation. During this period, Jeff co-authored the highly acclaimed book, The Mushroom Cultivator, which was published in 1983. In the 1980s, he operated a mushroom spawn business, and in 1989, he started Namex, a business that introduced medicinal mushrooms to the U.S. nutritional supplement industry. He traveled extensively in China during the 1990s, attending conferences and visiting research facilities and mushroom farms. In 1997, he organized the first organic mushroom production seminar in China. Jeff's company, Namex, was the first to offer a complete line of certified organic mushroom extracts to the U.S. nutritional supplement industry. Namex extracts are used by many supplement companies and are noted for their high quality based on scientific analysis of the active compounds. Jeff, welcome today. How you doing? <laughs> Very good, Rob. Wow. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. What, what was it that way back when piqued your interest in mushrooms? What is it about mushrooms that got your interest to become now one of the world's leading experts in mushrooms? Well, you know, Pacific Northwest, perfect climate for mushrooms. It's actually one of the best mushroom-growing areas in the world for wild mushrooms. And so they were all around me. I got out early um, as a uh, 
youngster on mushroom hunts. And, you know, it's like a treasure hunt, Rob. <laughs> it's really fun. You get out, you walk through the woods, beautiful environment, and you find uh, some choice edible mushrooms. And it's like, oh, my God, check this out. So, so that was a lot of fun. <clears throat> and, and then um, going to university, you know, studying anthropology, which I really enjoyed a lot. And, but also, I was still interested in mushrooms. And look, part of that interest to be Frank was, you know, this is the 60s. We're, we're uh, experimenting a lot and mushrooms were a part of that experimentation. So I kind of put the two studies together. And, and in, in, in terms of ethnomycology, I mean, that just means the study of uh, the usages of mushrooms by cultures for food for medicine and uh, for shamanic purposes. So, you know, and there wasn't, there wasn't a, a actual uh, school of ethnomycology there at the time. There might be out there right now, but <clears throat> so I just put my two studies together because I was taking courses in mycology along with my anthropological studies. So, so at any rate, that was the start. And then what do you do with a degree in anthropology? <laughs> not a lot I, I mean today they they you know maybe they've got a place out there with all the new cultures and stuff like that but uh back then so i just thought well i'd love to grow mushrooms and i read up about it and went to my mycology professor he said hey there's a mushroom farm 60 miles down the road in olympia i went down got a job i was just like ah oh, i'm so excited it was just <clears throat> amazing to me I was there for the next 10 years, living with mushrooms, <laughs> literally living with mushrooms. Well, you know, on the topic of ethnobotany or ethnomycology, as an, herb, as an herbalist, and, and uh, I know that herbalists in general, that um, especially in the absence of you know, modern day studies, that looking at what the indigenous cultures use the herbs for or use the mushrooms for gives you a good indication of what things you can later put to the test in terms of objective, you know, um, more um, measurement-based studies of them. Well, that's absolutely right. In fact, what we do in terms of uh, our product offerings, I mean, Rob, there's a, I've got a book, it's called Icons of Medicinal Mushrooms Produced in China. It lists 270 different mushrooms with some kind of medicinal value. Where do you go from there, right? So, so what what I, I do is I look at uh, the use of mushrooms in traditional Chinese medicine. What are the main mushrooms they're using? I take those, and there's maybe about a dozen or so, and then I go out to the scientific literature and I say, what science is out there that supports the use of these mushrooms for what they're using it for, and and put the two together and that's where I, I can go, okay, here are the 10 or 12 major mushrooms. And then I can offer those to um, the supplement industry. So your company offers quite a few um, isolated mushroom extracts, don't they? Well, um, basically, I believe we've got 10 species that we work with. And, and, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do, too, is, is that when we extract our mushrooms, we're, we're not trying to build up any particular compound. We'd like to keep that extract as close to the profile of the actual 
dried mushroom, which that's what we base everything on. We, we profile that with our testing and then we want our extracts to pretty much match that. But of course, they're concentrates uh, um, and the concentrates, of course, will have uh, certain levels that may be higher than just the mushroom itself, but that's just common with any type of concentration or extraction process. Well, this might be jumping the gun a little bit with my questions, but let's jump in on the extraction process that you're using with your mushrooms. Uh, from what I've been reading, it sounds like you're using a double extraction process to take advantage of both the alcohol extraction method as well as hot water. Is that correct? Well, we, we do both, um, primarily uh, in terms of traditional Chinese medicine, they're using a lot of water extraction. And with, with the majority of the mushrooms, that's really all you need is the water extraction. But there are some mushrooms like reishi, like chaga, where they have compounds in there that are not as water soluble. I mean, a lot, a lot of those compounds, like triterpenoids, for example, triterpenoids are more of a, an oil, uh, a lipid type of compound. So, so um, they, they're not soluble in water, but, but we can still get most of the triterpenes out, but not 100% of them. So that's where we would also, uh, in our extraction process, use one step where we also extract with alcohol, and that would get everything out of that raw material so you know when when we're extracting uh when we're finished we like to think that all that's left is pretty much inert fiber so um we would extract three times twice with water one with alcohol to make our concentrates uh and then we feel fine about removing the fiber and uh, uh taking care of it that way and your company doesn't actually sell any retail products. You sell in bulk to other manufacturers who then um, manufacture some product that's sold to the consumer. Well, we actually do both. Oh. We, we have a, a um, retail division, uh, but we don't put the products in the stores, and primarily because we'd be competing with our our normal customers. So, so Namex sells the bulk powders to other companies that put our powders in capsules, bottles, um, puts their, their brand on it, their label. But then our retail end is called Real Mushrooms. And, and that our products are sold off uh, the internet uh, on our website or Amazon. And, and so there are both sides of that. What are the, um, how can, how can um, our listeners find your real mushroom products? Realmushrooms.com. Oh, that's, that's, that's pretty simple. And, and you, yeah, yeah, well, you know, you know, Rob, one of the, one of the reasons why we, we even use the name Real Mushrooms, and that's our, our uh, sort of company name for selling those, is, is you know, we want to let people know that they're genuine 100% mushroom products. And you and I have talked about this in the past about how there are so many facsimiles out there that are masquerading as mushrooms. And a lot of people think, what, really? But but yeah, that's that's the thing out there. And, and that, that's one of the things about Namex and what we do is, is we feel that analysis of the <clears throat> what are considered the major active compounds or the compounds which which definitely can identify that product as being fungal 
we believe that analysis is really important to guarantee to our customers that they're getting the genuine mushroom and not some other facsimile or something that's similar or some something that's the different plant part. Uh, and that's really important. You know, with herbal products, you, you can call it what you want. I mean, you can call it ginseng or echinacea or something like that, but, but there are multiple plant parts to that. There's the root, there's the flower, there's the leaf, there's the fruit, all of these different things. And they, they can have different amounts of those active compounds. And so that, that's what makes it at times a little bit tricky out there in that herbal market is, is you get a product and you know it has a picture of that plant or that mushroom. And you think that's what you're getting when in fact, maybe the plant part that you're getting is not correct and isn't the part that has the major active compounds in it. So it's a really, at times, um, difficult to get a high quality product. And that's why testing for us is, is so very, very important. This is really a big issue right now in the herbal industry in general, like with the adulteration or with the substitution of, of something that looks similar to the plant that they're supposed to be selling but looks differently. Um, I imagine that because your mushrooms are primarily cultivated that you don't have any problems with the identification, that you're certain that the reishi is reishi, you know, and you're using the part of the plant that um, through objective studies has been found to have the highest concentration of, of actives. In fact, I've been, as an herbalist and, and as an integrative practitioner, I've been aware of and I've used mushrooms for many, many years. And to our listening audience, I was not really aware that not all mushroom products out there are actually made from the mushroom, from the fruiting body of the mushroom, the what we see as the physical mushroom itself, um, until Jeff um, uh, discussed this with me and then showed some studies that he had been sponsoring, that he'd been doing, other studies that were independent, indicating that the, that the way that they cultivate mushrooms um, in some places does not create as potent a product as when they allow the fruiting body to grow. You perhaps could do a better job of explaining that to our listening audience, Jeff. Since Well, you know, you know what, the, what I like to do is just talk about this as a, first of all, a fungal organism. And this organism that we commonly call a mushroom actually this organism has three different plant parts. The first would be a spore. You know, you know, mushrooms don't have seeds, as you know, Rob. And it's kind of funny because you talk to people about growing plants or something. And it's like, what do you start with? Well, it's a seed. Well, what if you don't have a seed? How do you start to grow something? Mushrooms have spores. We don't actually use spores as our inoculum, but, but in the wild, uh, there are spores. In fact, in fact, the air we breathe is full of spores and all sorts of other types of microorganisms. Those spores, they land on the ground, they land on wood. When they germinate, uh, they germinate into a very fine filament, very thread-like, super fine filament called a hypha. Um, when multiple hypha fuse together, they will form a network and that network is called mycelium. Mycelium is actually the vegetative body of this organism. 
And and we're usually unaware of this mycelium because it's underground, it's buried in its substrate. The substrate is what it's feeding on. So it's buried in a piece of wood or something. So unless you're actually, you know, and you can, when you, you pull a mushroom out of the ground, if you, if you look where you've pulled it out, you can see under there that there's some white mold-like uh, substance growing. That's the mycelium, it's the vegetative body. And that will essentially, its job is to, uh, or what it does is it decomposes as it's feeding on organic matter, it's decomposing it ultimately to humus along with other organisms. When conditions are right, that mycelial network will put up a mushroom. The mushroom's called the fruiting body. The mycelium is called the vegetative body. So we have three basic plant parts. We have spore, we have mycelium, and we have mushroom. And the mushroom is what is traditionally used in traditional Chinese medicine. It's what we eat. The mycelium has never been something that we've utilized in that way. And, and the mycelium actually um, does not produce the same types of compounds that we're looking at or or produce those compounds in uh, the uh, quantity that, that a mushroom does. So the mushroom is really the key. It's what's been used traditionally and, and that's what we grow. And in terms of the mycelium, I mean, Rob, we can talk about how that's produced. The, the issues out there is some companies sell mycelium, but the, the problem with that is they, they will grow it on grain. And then they'll uh, dry that grain with mycelium, grind it to a powder and sell it. And when you analyze it, those products are mostly starch from the grain and very little of the beta-glucans, which are what we want, because the beta-glucans are the compounds that have that immunological activity. So that's one of the things that, that I have been able to show to the industry and and let me tell you rob that that has been a game changer out there in terms of of mushroom products and quality control and man if you want to talk about adulteration can you imagine if, if some company is selling a product and and they're calling it a mushroom but it's mostly grain starch doesn't seem exactly truthful does it <laughs> <laughs> no, especially when they're calling the product mushroom. It's mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. This is not a mushroom. A mushroom is what we can see. It's, you know, some people say it's the fruiting body. That's fine. But, but remember, that's the mushroom. This is the mushroom we're talking about. It's not this mycelium. Mycelium is a vegetative body. No, uh, there's a very big difference between the two. And although mycelium now is produced in China in fermentation technology, which is liquid culture, and they, they will produce these mycelium products, those are 100% mycelium. The products that, that are produced in the United States are grown on grain, which is not removed from the final product. So the final product remains mostly uh, grain starch. 
So when I learned about the integrity and about the potency of the Namex products, I knew that I had to formulate a product for Arx Vitamins, which I did. It's Coriolis Forte, and uh, it also includes two Chinese herbs, astragalus and uh, licorice root, to enhance the um, bioactivity and immunogenicity of that formula. And we're real happy with that, Jeff. But I, I wanted to, first of all, um, I wanted to do a little station break here. You're listening to Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. I'm Dr. Rob Silver, and I'm speaking today with Jeff Chilton. But you brought up um, a very interesting question that I have had, and I've been asked by other vets as well, because many vets are, are knowledgeable now about the value of mushrooms based on the immunity study, the study at the University of Pennsylvania, showing... Um, improved survival times in dogs with hemangiosarcoma that were not given uh, chemo, better than dogs that were given the chemo. There were small study groups, and we need a much larger sample than that, but but um, pet owners and veterinarians both are, you know, really looking for that kind of effect of mushrooms on their patients. So, because it's hard and expensive to get the immunity, it's a quite an expensive product, um, many people are looking to the turkey tail, also known as Tramedes, also known as Coriolis, three names for the same, for the same shroom, so to speak, um, to look to the, the, the whole fruiting body mushroom as a source of PSP, which is what is the, the, the active ingredient in the immunity, or PSK, which is the Japanese form of the same thing. Is there actually any of these um, beta-glucan-type um, molecules in the fruiting body of the Coriolis, or is it only derived through this um, mycelial growth in this amped-up nutrient broth and then a special process for extraction? That's what I've been believing to be true, but you are the expert. So what do you say, dude? Well, you know, it's, it's it's such an interesting question, and it's so interesting as well that that these drug-like products, PSK is is a absolute uh, drug product or considered as such in Japan, but, but, you know, the way they use it is they use it as an adjuvant to normal cancer therapies, so they use it as something that can help your immunity. PSP uh, was very similar. It was developed in China. I, I am actually... I, I met the uh, scientist who developed PSP. I met him in 1989. He actually was a, quite a good friend of mine. And so I know the process very well. And, you know, so they're growing the mycelium um, out in liquid culture, fermentation tanks. So it's 100% mycelium. Then they essentially will be extracting and purifying that with a number of steps to where it is primarily what is considered to be protein-bound polysaccharide. And when, when I say polysaccharide, it is actually protein-bound beta-glucan because that's primarily what it is. Um, turkey tail, the actual mushroom turkey tail, interestingly enough, in our analyses of all of the mushrooms, it has the highest level of beta-glucan of all of them. The only one that comes close to turkey tail is, is reishi. You know, and I always found that really interesting that turkey tail and reishi were the two highest in beta glucan, and, and reishi being such a uh, powerful 
mushroom uh, historically and, you know, considered the mushroom of immortality of all of this. And then turkey tail having the same high level of that. And, and what you have to remember, too, is these protein bound polysaccharides, they are in all mushrooms. Now, they're not concentrated like PSP or PSK, but all mushrooms will, will contain a certain amount of these beta-glucans that are protein bound. So even in a standard uh, turkey tail extract, um, you will be getting protein bound polysaccharides, protein bound beta-glucans. So there will be there. And, and, and so for me, I think, yeah, of course you can use uh, turkey tail mushroom extracts rather than this PSP product, I'm immunity. I mean, you absolutely can. The price, the price of the product, Rob, look, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And, and you know, people buy it on the, on the basis of this one study. I suspect you could get actually the same effects by using the turkey tail extracts themselves. Because again, they do have the protein-bound polysaccharides and a very, very high level of beta-glucan, 50%, 50% beta-glucan. It's just, it's amazing. So, so yeah, I, I, I think, you know, uh, certainly you can say, oh, well, yeah, but that's been studied. Turkey tail has been used for such a long time in traditional Chinese medicine that, of course, it's a, a valuable product for uh, immunological activity. So I, I, I think you could use that uh, interchangeably. Mm -hmm. It was by virtue of the value of the uh, Coriolis, the turkey tail, that I gave it the largest uh, percentage in this uh, blend of five different mushrooms. Uh, I would have liked to have given a higher percentage to reishi, but when it comes to pet products, palatability rules, and that, <laughs> and that reishi is awfully bitter. You know, I have to put it in my espresso to hide that bitterness. <laughs> Um, I know, I know. I put it in my black coffee in the morning, you know. and, and if you you have to kind of like bitter, and I don't think dogs mm. really like bitter too much. They they do not. But I I want I put I did put some in there, although it's at a lesser amount. Um, sure. And it's a triterpenes in that which give it that bitterness. But but um, turkey tail also has its own triterpenes, but they're more of a sour tasting triterpene than bitter really it's interesting yeah yeah and you know that's something that we haven't really measured we measure triterpenes in uh, reishi and we measure triterpenes in chaga because mm -hmm. that's uh, the some of the compounds that have been researched in chaga are triterpenoids and so we've got standards we can test for those triterpenoids now and and you know what I love so much, Rob, is being able to, to take, let's say, various raw materials. Because what's interesting about Ganoderma, for example, is that the level of triterpenes in the mushroom itself will vary from strain or what we would call a, a cultivar. And a strain is basically that same species, but it's grown in a, a different location. Maybe it's grown in another state, another across the country somewhere. So uh, having different conditions, um, feeding on different materials, that strain over time will end up producing different levels of triterpenes. So we're always looking for uh, a strain of Ganoderma that produces high levels of triterpenes. So that, that's one of, one of the issues that's really interesting to me is when we, when we test 
and we'll test all different reishi mushrooms, for example, and then we'll test the extracts that come from them to see that we're getting all of the triterpenes out that we expect to get. But we really want to start with a high quality raw material before we proceed into extraction. So that's what we want to be growing. You're listening to Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. So um, to kind of digress a little bit, um, but thank you for that information, especially about the fact that the that we don't have to be dependent upon this very expensive supplement, this immunity, which which preys on the vulnerability, the emotional vulnerability of the pet owner, because you know they're they're reaching out for that when their pet oftentimes has a terminal terminal cancer. And they'll they'll pay anything to save their animal's life. And um, I do believe it probably does contribute to quality of life during the time that they're they're around. And you know the the study that limited study in just five dogs found an increase in survival time. It didn't cure them, you know. And and I think that's also something that is not really understood that well. But I wanted to kind of go back to your roots, or shall we say, your your mycelium, Jeff. <laughs> and um, because some of your original interest in the 60s was about um, was was regarding psilocybin and it's and things have come full circle you know now that we have cannabis um, federally legal in Canada and moving in that direction here in the US um, there's a lot less um, nervousness about um, using plant materials that may have an effect on the mind and there are some interesting preliminary studies about the use of psilocybin for treating depression, treating psychiatric disorders. I just wanted you to kind of weigh in a little bit on that because I think eventually we're going to be seeing it available also as a medicinal substance. Well, well, you know what? Yeah, you and a lot of uh, companies out there right now, Rob. I mean, it's it's you know fascinating to see what's going on with it and see some of the laws start to change. And it looks like they're going to progress in much the same way that uh, cannabis has progressed, where they'll start out with medicinal use and maybe ultimately uh, go to uh, recreational use of some sort. And and I fully support that. I, I mean. I mean, you, you and I know what, what it was like living through prohibition. Um, I, I have friends that have been in jail because of cannabis prohibition. And so uh, now that prohibition is, is slowly starting to fade away, hopefully, and will stay that way, um, I, I think it's just such a wonderful um, move towards utilizing, you know, they had a lot of research that was was starting back in the 60s on these things for uh, different mental illnesses and so forth. And, and the, the other thing that um, they're using them for is breaking addictions. They, they've got a lot of studies that show people who like, for example, a tobacco addiction, very has helped a lot of people stay off tobacco. They're using it for other types of, of uh, harder drug type addictions. That in itself is 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 huge. If you could imagine pulling people out of, um, you know, when, when I look at some of these cities and, and some of the people that have got drug issues and they're they're not living well, they're living very rough and and being able to kind of uh, address that problem, which nobody's really been able to address up to this point, if we could do that. And studies have shown that it works very well for that. 
So whether it be mental health issues, whether it be uh, addiction issues, whether the other thing is end of life, they're using it for end of life issues. People that are very, very anxious about the fact that they are dying. We, we all are anxious about that, but the, the fact <laughs> the fact is, is that if you can be comforted by this and, and, it, and it opens up the door to a whole different spiritual and mental um, <clears throat> uh, outlook uh, or vista to where you can see how we're all just part of this organism that we've have been separated from, and, and, and that's a huge issue to me. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that we all grew up with is we're separate from all that out there. And, and that, of course, allows us to manipulate it uh, without thinking about whether we take down trees or take down animal species or, or you name it. That, that, that allows us to do it very readily. And however, when we start to think about us being connected to everything, that, that's a game changer, really. And, and Ultimately, for end-of-life issues, it is a game-changer for people, and, they, and they've said that. I mean, did you ever read any uh, um, Aldous Huxley, Rob? I did, yes. Doors of Perception. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, and then he came out. Did you ever read his book, Island? No, I didn't. Island, I, I recommend that to everybody. That was, um, you know, he, he wrote Brave New World, which was kind of the dystopian look of where we were going and then he wrote island which was more of the utopian side of mm. things and one of the things that they did in island was uh, when um, uh, teenagers reached adulthood at, at 18 or so they went through a a mushroom ceremony that was part of it part mm. of the initiation cool. so yeah yeah that's why it was such a one of my favorite books back then, of course, because we were all going through an initiation, weren't we? <laughs> yes, we were. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> no, I, I went through that same initiation, um, and I am better for it, I do believe. Yes, you know, I, 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 I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and it was just unfortunate that it had to have been criminalized because, you know, that... I really think that the criminalization of it was what created a lot of the issues and problems that came out of that period. If it had not been, you know, nobody had guides. Nobody exactly knew how to use it. We were in an experimental mode because they just, you know, we didn't have these uh, gurus or Don Juans or elders telling us how to use these. No, instead they wanted us to go to church. So it's like, <laughs> come on, you know, for a lot of us, the church was nature and, and, and being out and, and connecting with nature in a, in a more, uh, um, I guess, broader, deeper way. Multidimensional. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, you know, that's just where I feel like I'm, I'm kind of hopeful now, after for many years feeling like, hey, cannabis would never be legalized, uh, it's legal in Canada now, countrywide. And, and I know it's sort of slowly getting there in the U.S. and there's states that have legalized it. And is, are mushrooms uh, next in line? That would be wonderful. I certainly hope so. And just as an aside, I have been contacted, Rob, by at least six or seven major large corporations 
uh, new corporations that are looking to get into the gold rush for psilocybin normalization, wanting me to be an advisor in some way, either to help them cultivate the mushroom or to <clears throat> somehow just be a name they can put on their advisory board or something. Uh, I, I'm not interested in that. I usually say, well, you know, why don't you start with a line of medicinal mushrooms first? <laughs> and that, <clears throat> but otherwise, there there is a there are a number of these corporations out there, and and they're they're looking at it in a number of ways. But most of them, unfortunately, are looking at it as like, yeah, we want to be the next cannabis company that's making yeah, they're billions for the of money. dollars. But yeah, you, but you know, Jeff, based on your experience and your knowledge, and you know, and your your mindset, I can't think of anyone who would be better to help advise, you know, at least one or two of these selected companies in a way that would benefit the consumer and benefit the industry as a whole, especially if, as it's getting started. I doubt you have wiggle room. You've got a pretty busy life. Um, let me, let's turn the conversation here to um, an important question, because uh, especially these days, uh, China's gotten to have a little bit of a, of a, negativity and especially products coming out of China, possible adulteration, things such as that. Um, your mushrooms are grown in China, I think for the most part, maybe not the chaga, but um, can you talk to us about um, how you achieve USDA organic certification? What steps you take to ensure that these products that are um, cultivated in China um, are of the highest purity? Sure. You know, just just as a, a basis of that, <clears throat> as a large scale mushroom cultivator, I started out from, you know, and I was on the very big farm early. I know the economics of mushroom growing. And what some people don't realize is they think, well, why don't you grow them here? And <clears throat> the fact is, is that it's not economical to grow them here. You can grow them for food, but remember for supplement use, they're all dried powders. Mushrooms are 90% water like most vegetables. So, so uh, what you're getting $5 for your fresh shiitake, now you've got to get $50 for that dried shiitake. Economics do not work for supplement use. So that's why I went to China and I, I realized that, I mean, I went to China in 1989 to an international mushroom conference. And the amazing thing about China is they have research institutes, um, probably a dozen of these mushroom research institutes. They have hundreds of mushroom scientists. In the United States, we have one university in the United States that actually has a small group that deals with mushroom cultivation and uh, um, science and so forth. And that's in Pennsylvania because they have a huge mushroom industry there. So you can imagine right now that that group is down to fewer people than than back in 1973. In 73, there was like probably at least a dozen people in that department. They're all plant pathologists. They they understood mushroom cultivation. They had small cultivation setups there doing a lot of great research now there's i think two or three people there mm. so so that's really the difference and and the other thing about china is that um they that's where shiitake mushrooms were 
where they learned how to cultivate shiitake mushrooms, the 12th century. They've been doing this for a long, long time. They're very organized. They, they, uh, the farmers, I mean, the, the number of farmers there is, is unreal, small farmers. So having realized that the economics didn't work, that's why I went to China with OCIA in 1997 and had that first organic certification uh, workshop for mushrooms because I knew that the only way that we could bring mushroom supplements to North America was having them cultivated and grown in China and then processed into our extract powders. So, so that was just a fact of life. And look, you know what? We can point the finger at countries as a whole or anything like that. Does anybody even think about the thousands of pounds, millions of pounds of pesticides and chemicals dumped on the United States every year on all sorts of crop. I mean, we were the ones that developed all those things. And, and, and so it's not so much a matter of like the country that it's grown in, but it's where it is actually grown. And our mushrooms are grown back in the mountains, away from the areas where there's a lot of pollution. One of the things that we have to do is we have to analyze every single batch that we produce for heavy metals, for pesticides, for a complete microbiological panel to, to assure that it's totally clean. And, and those are nothing more than industry standards. A lot of people think that supplement industry is not regulated. Not true. We have all of those standards. Uh, what's interesting is that even though we have those standards, the real issue is adulteration because somebody can say, oh, I, I've passed all of these heavy metals tests and, and uh, pesticide tests, and, and the product could be nothing but starch. <laughs> so uh, misrepresented. So, so we test all of those and we can't sell our products until they meet those standards. So it's, it's kind of like someone who's saying, oh yeah, China, they're so bad. Would you eat produce or something that was produced on the Gulf Coast of Texas or Louisiana in those areas where they've got the petrochemical industries or any other place where there's heavy industries that are polluting the soil and the air and so on? Really, that's the, the issue. Where do they come from? Have they been analyzed to demonstrate that they're clean? So, so people who want to continually point the finger elsewhere, I just say, look in your own backyard and start there first. You know, those same people maybe are not even eating organic produce in the U.S. True. Good answer. Good answer. So, um, we're kind of nearing the end of our time here. And um, I was wondering, is there anything that you feel that I haven't asked you, any topic that we've not touched upon that's near and dear to your heart that you would like to share with our listening audience? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about the, the, um, the fact of quality control. We've talked about the fact of adulteration. Um, people have to be very, very careful um, they can go into a Whole Foods or something like that. And, you know, it doesn't matter that it's in Whole Foods or wherever it is. These products can be in there. The label can say mushroom and when it's not mushroom at all. So that's definitely an issue that people really have to be 
paying attention to. But, you know, one of the things that's kind of exciting me right now, Rob, that I'm really um, keen about, we talked a little bit about it earlier, and that's the whole vitamin D issue. You know, we just came out with a product um, where we took our mushroom extracts and we added vitamin D from mushrooms. It's D2 from mushrooms and chelated zinc into one product and and you know back at the beginning of this with covid and i'm reading I, i've been reading about vitamin d for years now and and it's just fascinating and especially the fact that mushrooms contain ergosterol which is like our cholesterol and as in humans where when we're exposed to uv that that cholesterol uh, turns into vitamin D that we utilize. We produce the vitamin D. Um, mushrooms produce vitamin D from that ergosterol that's in there. Now, disregarding for a minute the issue of, okay, what's better? There's certainly lots of studies about vitamin D2 being pretty positive. But I, I just, uh, you know, with this product I'm talking about, I thought I, I used to take vitamin D all the time. I used to take zinc all the time because zinc is also good for prostate. And so I, I'm like, huh, if I put those together with some of our mushroom extracts, I would have the perfect product for myself. <laughs> so where I would have my zinc, I would have my vitamin D, I'd have my mushroom extract all in two capsules a day. So we put this product out and, and I think this whole issue of, the amount of vitamin D people get all of the studies uh, and, and, and new studies with COVID demonstrate that people who have been more susceptible to COVID have uh, almost every study lower levels of vitamin D in their, in their system. So supplementing with vitamin D not just for COVID, but just in general. And when you start to look at some of the papers that have been produced on vitamin D and all of the different benefits they provide, it is amazing how important vitamin D is for our overall health. And so one of the projects that we're working on right now is, is creating vitamin D ourselves. We, we get it right now from a company in the United States, and that's good, but we're also going to be creating it ourselves for our own company and being able to sell it out there. And I just think it's, you know, to be into that as well, where we're producing a product that is so beneficial. And, and I just, Rob, I got to tell you, I'm just so happy that I'm producing and selling a product that I consider to be a beneficial product for people's health out there. And I'm glad I'm not selling widgets or some other thing just because I want to make a living or make money or all the rest. I mean, I really am happy that I can produce a product that provides benefits to people. And, and so this vitamin D project is something that I'm really happy about. And, and one of the things that you should be aware of too, if you're not, is, is just look at the way that vitamin D3 is produced. Oh man, you cannot believe it. The, the actual, I mean, the majority of the vitamin D out there produced from lanolin is a uh, industrial process that is like scary really when you look at all the the uh, chemicals that are used to do that with the the d2 all it is is just a uh, um, uv exposed 
uh, mushroom powder. That's all it is. It's just a straight mushroom powder exposed to UV. Boom. There it is. So Very is, simple. is this product currently available for the consumer? Well, we, we do have <clears throat> we do have a vitamin D2 product available through our real mushrooms line. Okay. It, it's the the issue is that it's it's kind of expensive because right now the company that makes it and the where we get it from it's very expensive and it's organic so that's adds another expense to it but once we start to produce it the the price will be cut uh, down significantly to where it will be more competitive with D D three is just really cheap really cheap so so um, it will be more competitive. Once we start producing it ourselves, and that's something, a project that we've got I'm right in the middle of, of trying to bring that up online right now, and hopefully we'll have it in the next few months. Nice, nice. And um, for your um, information and for our listening audience's information as well, next month's webinar that I'll be uh, producing through DVM 360, the topic will be uh, an integrative approach to chronic kidney disease. And one of the major tools that we look at for chronic kidney disease is vitamin D. And so there will be a whole section in that webinar on vitamin D. And in my podcast, and each of these podcasts follows a webinar on a topic. My last podcast was on medical mushrooms. Here we've got Jeff Chilton, world expert on medical mushrooms. Uh, Next month, the topic on chronic kidney disease, we're going to bring in Randy Ringgold, who is the director of VDI Labs, who has um, pioneered a, a new technology for vitamin D testing in dogs and cats, and he'll be talking more about his findings after testing thousands upon thousands of dogs, cats, and horses for vitamin D, and we'll be talking about some of the other tests he's offering and, um, and a number of other um, important questions for the consumer. But... Um, it's um it's interesting that you're finding you're going in the direction of vitamin D as well because it is it it, it um vitamin, when I teach classes on vitamin D I you know we mention that it is um it's coded in 2000 different genes it's it's really out there it's a very potent anti-inflammatory compound in many cases it and it's it's chemically related to steroids and has a very strong anti-inflammatory activity yeah yeah it's fantastic it really is well, Jeff, this has been great. Um, we're, our, our time's about up here, and I want to thank you for your time and, and your wisdom. Um, I'm always, I'm always um, educated every time I speak with you on these topics. So this concludes today's Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. I am Dr. Silver, and I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to join us for future shows by hitting the subscribe button so you won't miss a thing. Until next time, this is Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. Bye. Bye, Jeff. See you, Rob. Thank you. Vet Talk with Dr. Silver has been sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or give them a call at 1-800-792-2222.